Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. A regular listener and donor recently wrote and asked me not to neglect Brexit as a subject for a podcast. Now, I've already done one, but for the most part I've avoided Brexit because A, it's too painful, and B, the damn story is too long like a Mahler symphony, crescendos that build to false climaxes and then fade to some sounds of dread coming from the double basses before rehashing ideas we heard 15 minutes before on the way to yet another crescendo of unfulfillment. Then, by chance, as Brexit Day, March 29th, dawned, Facebook's memory function showed me something I had posted two years earlier on March 29th, 2017, the day Theresa May sent her Article 50 notification to the EU, beginning what was supposed to be a two-year process of withdrawal. I wrote, I hope like a typical EU negotiation it drags on past the deadline, and on past the next deadline. And so... While we're waiting for the final, final decisions, decisions that may take a long time yet, I might as well do the damn Brexit first rough draft of history, since one way and another I've been writing it for 29 years. Now I warn you, it is a long story, but what must seem like madness to outsiders has a chronological order to it, and so you won't die of boredom, let me tell this chronology in the form of a five-movement, Mahler-like symphony called The Death and Resurrection of Margaret Thatcher, because believe me, at its heart, that's what this story is all about. First Movement. Brexit, although it wasn't called that in 1990, was the first hard news story I ever reported. I began my career doing arts and quirky offbeat features, but Thanksgiving weekend, 1990, the then NPR London bureau chief had booked a few days off in Paris and asked me to babysit the office in case there was news. Turned out there was. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher resigned. Now, there were many reasons for this, but Britain's relationship with Europe was high on the list. The challenge to her leadership of the Conservative Party had begun while she was in Paris at a European summit to discuss closer European integration. It is hard to remember the excitement of those first years after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. The possibility of creating a democratically unified Europe was thrilling, particularly to the French and German leaders, François Mitterrand and Helmut Kohl, it was less exciting to Mrs. Thatcher, who said, even before the Berlin Wall came down, we have not successfully rolled back the frontiers of the state in Britain, only to see them reimposed at a European level, with a European superstate exercising a new dominance from Brussels. What was it she feared? A federal Europe superseding national governments and authority. The head of the European Commission, Jacques Delors, had proposed a grand vision for what was then called the European Community, concentrating administrative power in the Europe-wide institutions, like the Parliament and, especially, his Commission, the administrative wing of the European Community. Now, this was far from becoming reality, but no matter. Delors was a socialist, classically educated in the way of the French elite. Grand theorizing was as natural to him as English pragmatism was to Thatcher. Thatcher elevated these differences to a culture clash. Maybe because Delors was a socialist, although of the French variety, not the Stalinist kind, or maybe, as she would write in her book Statecraft, 
most of the problems the world has faced have come from mainland Europe and the solutions from outside it. To a certain degree, this was a view of some of Britain's World War II generation. Germans started it, French bottled it, we bailed them out. Mitterrand, Cole, and Delors were also of the World War II generation and took a different lesson from their experience. They saw integration as a way to avoid a replay of that conflagration. Thatcher's own Conservative Party was split on the issue of how enthusiastically to join the push for deeper European integration. Many of the younger backbenchers were born after the war and were more concerned with anti-communism, socialism, statism. They believed in the wisdom of free markets, with the fervor of a five-year-old believing that Santa brought presents on Christmas. They agreed with Mrs. T that closer political integration would lead to socialism through the back door. Thatcher, like her political soulmate, Ronald Reagan, may have been an ideologue at heart, but she was also a pragmatic politician. She didn't utterly reject European integration. She worked for the creation of a single market across Europe. Won't bore you with details, but it involved harmonizing standards and rules and making it easier for capital to flow from country to country. In October 1990, she also allowed the pound to join the European exchange rate mechanism. The pound effectively shadowed what was the forerunner of the single currency without being part of it. Does this all sound dry to you? You should have tried reporting it. Anyway, is it worth overthrowing the woman who had won three handsome electoral victories and utterly changed the face of British society over this technical stuff? Well, the personal is the political, and by 1990 her run of success had eroded the pragmatism that had contributed to it. She had lost the ability to compromise that is at the heart of all political success. The Conservative Party was not hers alone, but increasingly she acted as if it was. There was a very strong wing of centrists, many of them in her cabinet. One by one they resigned or were forced out. Her increasingly harsh words about Europe did not make diplomacy and trade negotiating easier. In October 1990, there was a summit of European leaders in Rome where Delors presented the latest plan for the creation of the euro. It outlined a federal association with new powers for the European Parliament and oversight for the Commission. The meeting ended in acrimony. Two days later, Thatcher returned to London and gave a harsh report to Parliament condemning the rush to a federal Europe. The chairman or the president of the Commission, Mr. Delors, said at press conference the other day that he wanted the European Parliament to be the democratic body of the community. He wanted the Commission to be the executive and he wanted the Council of Ministers to be the Senate. No! 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 With her opinion polls already losing altitude, inevitable after 11 years in office, removing her from power became a possibility. She was challenged for the leadership of the party, the leader of the majority party in Parliament by custom is the Prime Minister, failed to win support on the first ballot of Tory MPs, and so, on Thanksgiving Day 1990, she resigned. Second Movement it is now 1992. The collective trauma to the Conservative Party cannot be underestimated. For the younger Tories who adored Mrs. T, she was the victim of regicide, or matricide. Looking for someone or something to blame, they settled on Europe. Thatcher's successor, John Major, now had to oversee how Britain would fit into the next phase of European integration. 
Throughout his first year in office, he came under immense pressure to bring Britain into the single currency. Major refused to give in on this. He kept the UK out of the euro, a key part of the Maastricht Treaty. Maastricht redefined relationships amongst members of what was now to be called the more federal-sounding European Union. In a very real sense, he had fulfilled Thatcher's plan, carving a special relationship, to borrow a phrase, with Britain's European partners that gave the country continued benefits and voice in shaping European policy without taking the risk of giving up his nation's sovereign currency. A few months after his success at Maastricht, Major won a general election that opinion polls expected the Tories to lose. Did these achievements get him the gratitude of his party? No. The Thatcherites wanted a complete split from Europe. Her words, no, 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 took on a practically religious significance for them. Some younger activists, including Nigel Farage, set up a new party called the United Kingdom Independence Party, or UKIP. Then came another crisis. In late 1992, the pound was forced out of the exchange rate mechanism, more proof for the Eurosceptics that integration with the rest of Europe was damaging to Britain. For the rest of his time in office, Major would be dogged by Eurosceptics on the back benches and bastards, his words not mine, inside his cabinet. When the Maastricht Treaty came to Parliament for a ratification vote, it was initially defeated by Eurosceptic Tories. He called another vote, declaring treaty ratification was a vote of confidence in the government, and this time he won. End of story. Oh, you must be joking. Every minute of his premiership he was dogged by the Eurosceptics. In their view, he was somehow not being true to the legacy bequeathed him by Mrs. Thatcher. He had betrayed her. In 1995, he called a leadership election. Back me or sack me. He won easily. But the sizable rump of Eurosceptics on the Tory backbenches in Parliament and the larger group in the party's membership simply wouldn't let the issue go. They were egged on relentlessly by the Tory-supporting, Thatcher-memorializing Eurosceptic press, which still dominates Britain, and was filled with absurd stories. Curved bananas banned by EU. Brussels bans barmaids from showing cleavage. And if you think these were light-hearted features, they were not. At the FRDH website, www.goldfarbpod.com, there's a link to a list of dozens of these stories, and their refutations. The Tory Eurosceptic rump was also egged on by Thatcher herself, who criticized Major, her hand-picked successor, for signing the Maastricht Treaty. Later, in 2002, she would go further, writing that Britain should leave the EU altogether. Brexit. In 1997, the Tories, after 18 years in power, were crushed in a historic landslide by the Labour Party, led by Tony Blair. Extremely pro-Europe, fluent in French, he worked one summer holiday as a bartender in a Parisian cafe, Tony Blair heralded a new era in Anglo-EU relations. The Conservatives would learn this lesson and regroup. Right? Wrong. Third movement. So the Conservative Party and its civil war were consigned to the outer reaches of Britain's political life. It was a bloody affair. William Hague, then Ian Duncan Smith, then Michael Howard, all were elected to the leadership. All were profoundly Eurosceptic. 
Haig was crushed by Blair in the 2001 general election. Duncan Smith, arguably the most Eurosceptic of the three, was so inept that even the EU haters realized they'd made a mistake and so they forced his resignation rather than let him lead the party in the next election. Howard did and didn't do much better. In 2005, even with the fallout from the Iraq War, Blair won a handsome victory. After Howard's defeat in 2005, the Conservatives turned to a more emollient figure, David Cameron. He followed the Blair playbook. He created an image of himself as a modernizer, not beholden to the old factions in his party, outward-looking, young father. And as for Europe, not really an issue. Europe was a place you took your family on holiday, maybe to visit their grandparents, as he did. Cameron's parents had a second home in France, just like Lord Rothermere, owner of the Eurosceptic Daily Mail, and Thatcher's former Chancellor of the Exchequer and ardent Brexiter, Nigel Lawson. In the 2010 general election, Cameron failed to lead the Tories to an outright majority, so he formed a coalition with the very pro-Europe Liberal Democrats. That put him in the position of having to downplay the issue with his Eurosceptic ultras, and in this period, Nigel Farage, Tory renegade of 1992 and still leader of UKIP, a single-issue party, began to make inroads into the Tory grassroots. At the 2015 general election, which was expected to be close, Cameron promised a referendum on Britain's continued membership of the EU. He was fearful of hemorrhaging voters to UKIP. The Tories squeaked a 12-seat majority. Cameron felt obliged to make good on the referendum promise. A year later, he delivered on that pledge, and now we live with the consequences. Fourth movement. Flashback. What did David Cameron really think about Europe? He campaigned to remain, but in a fairly relaxed fashion. Didn't he feel the urgency? Well... He has history with the EU as well. He was working as a special advisor to Norman Lamont, Chancellor of the Exchequer on the day Britain was forced out of the exchange rate mechanism. He experienced firsthand the downside of Britain's relationship with the EU. Shortly after the referendum, I was on the BBC News Channel's discussion program, Dateline London, and said I thought that Cameron was probably sanguine about leaving, didn't particularly care for the EU, no one could become leader of the Tory party without giving heavy nods and winks to MPs and the grassroots that he or she was somewhat Eurosceptic. My co-panelist, Alex Dean, who worked on Cameron's communication staff for a while, nodded in agreement. Another hint of what Cameron might really think in his heart of hearts is one of the most rabid Brexiters outside of Parliament is Cameron's close friend and former senior political advisor, Steve Hilton, now working for Fox News. And as for Theresa May, she campaigned for Remain, but like Cameron and most Tories, I think Euroscepticism is bred in the bone. The current frontrunners to replace her before long, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, were educated at Oxford during the decade when Margaret Thatcher bestrode the world like a colossus. They were among the Eurosceptic journalists I mentioned earlier, propagandizing outlandishly against the EU, laying the foundations for Brexit in the press before being elected to Parliament to make sure it happened. Fifth Movement Over three decades, the whole world has changed, except it would seem in Britain. 
Familiar Eurosceptic faces float across the TV screen, explaining why the failure to negotiate a decent withdrawal agreement is entirely Europe's fault. MPs, traumatized by Margaret Thatcher's defenestration three decades ago, like Bill Cash, Edward Lee, are still in Parliament. They have argued for simply walking away. No deal Brexit. Euroscepticism has become a dynastic idea, passed down from father to son. Around the time she was thrown out of office, I interviewed a Eurosceptic newspaper columnist and close friend of Thatcher, William Rees Mogg. His son, Jacob, is among the best known of the current crop of hardline Brexiters, making life miserable for Prime Minister Theresa May, a Tory tradition that goes back to John Major. In Europe, two separate generations of political leadership have risen and fallen. The Eurozone crisis has come and gone. Greece is still in the single currency, and despite inconceivable hardships, the Greeks still want to be in the EU and the Euro. The EU has expanded successfully, taking in countries that 30 years ago were part of the Soviet Empire. One can only imagine what their political leaders think when they look at Britain and see the same people taking the same views of what the EU is, views that were formed back in 1990, views that bear no relation to reality, are still driving policy. Over and over in these last frantic months of Brexit negotiations, the leaders of the EU and the member states have said, we still don't know what the British government wants. They sound like what they are at this point, exasperated rationalists. But the British government is wrestling with a ghost, Margaret Thatcher's ghost. For 30 years, her devotees have been trying to expiate the sin of forsaking her by making a policy out of her words. No! 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 And that's not a rational thing at all. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. I doubtless will be back to Brexit again. It's not going to end anytime soon. But in the meantime, you can go to the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. There's a lot of other stuff to listen to there. And you can make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks. <laughs>